Or you guys can turn to Romans chapter 6. That's where we will be this morning, Romans 6. One of the better books that I have read in the last couple years, you may have seen this a few years ago, it was making the rounds. It's called Same Kind of Different as Me by Ron Hall and Denver Moore. Uh, it's a story of an unlikely friendship between Ron, who is a, an upscale wealthy art dealer, and a guy named Denver Moore. Here he is, who has basically the exact opposite life of a wealthy upscale art dealer. Denver grew up a sharecropper in Louisiana in the 40s and 50s. Now, for a lot of us, um, American history has faded from our minds. We may not remember what sharecropping is. So let me tell you from Denver's own words, um, just to quote Denver. Since there ain't no sharecropping, now I'm going to tell you how it worked. The man owned the land. Then he gave you the cotton seeds and the fertilizer and the mule and some clothes and everything else you need to get through the year. Except he don't really give it to you. He lets you buy it at the store on credit. But it was his store on his plantation that he owned. You plowed and planted and tended till picking time. Then at the end of the year, when you bring in the cotton, you go to the man and settle up. Supposedly, you're going to split that cotton right down the middle or maybe 60-40, but by the time the crop come in, you owe the man so much on credit, your share of the crop gets eat up. And even if you don't think you owe that much, or even if the crop was specially good that year, the man weighs the cotton and writes down the figures, and he's the only one who can read the scale or books. So you done worked all year and the man ain't done nothing, but you still owe the man. And one nothing you could do but work his land for another year to pay off the debt. What it come down to was the man didn't just own the land, he owned you. I worked in fields for nearly 30 years like a slave, even though slavery had supposedly ended when my grandma was just a girl. I had a shack I didn't own, two pairs of overalls I got on credit, a hog and an outhouse. I worked in fields planting and plowing and picking and giving all the cotton to the man that owned the land, all without a paycheck. I didn't even know what a paycheck was. That's kind of hard to imagine. Denver Moore, we're not talking like back in the 1850s. We're talking like 40, 50 years ago. He lives in a place like this. In Louisiana, he lives as a sharecropper on this man's land. He lives like a virtual slave, even though he was free. So the whole 13th Amendment was about. There shall be no slavery in America. He, he was a free man, but he lived like a slave for three decades. And then if you've read the book, you know finally one day he had enough. And so he walks to the edge of the land that he farmed, and there was a train that ran by there. And as it slowed down next to his land, he hopped on, he left the land, and that was it. Now we hear that story, and it blows us away. We can't imagine choosing to live like a slave for 30 years. If that was me, I would have been out of there in 10 minutes, right? We wouldn't choose to live like slaves, would we? Well, actually, as Paul will unfold for us today, there are many, many Christians, maybe many of us in this room, who choose to live like slaves every day. Slaves of sin. How do you know if you're a slave of sin? Well, if you're a believer... But, but you can't seem to escape some sin in your life. There's some habitual sin that just seems to own you. And it takes away all your joy. You feel frustrated. You feel beaten down. You feel depressed. You feel discouraged. And then you look around. You see all these other believers who seem to be living with all of this joy, with all of this peace, with all of this victory, even in the midst of suffering. And you think, what's different about them? Why are they enjoying this freedom that I, that I am not? Well, well, Paul wants to liberate you this morning. Paul wants to help you understand as a believer that you can have freedom, that you can have life, that you no longer have to live like a slave of sin. That's where we're going in our passage this morning. But to get there, I want to review for a moment. So uh, let's backtrack. Let's talk about Romans as a book. 
Big idea of Romans. God is righteous. God is righteous in all he is and in all he does. Paul has been unfolding for us the righteousness of God this semester. And we began in the first part of the book with Paul's explanation that God is righteous in judgment. God is a righteous judge, and so in righteousness, in justice, he must condemn all sin. And since all of us are sinners, that means that God must condemn all of us. All of mankind stands under the wrath of God. That's the problem of the book of Romans. But, good news, there is a solution. Solution part one, God is righteous in justification. Justification, that means God declaring sinners to be righteous based on the finished work of Jesus on the cross and through their faith. That is justification. That's the good news of the gospel. Even though you are a sinner who deserves the wrath of God, you can be declared righteous right this moment for all eternity if you simply believe that Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead. God changes your status. That's what justification is about, legal status. He changes your status in an instant from unrighteous to righteous for all of eternity the moment you believe. That's justification, really good news. But as Paul continues in the book of Romans, we learn that God is not content just to change our status. He is not content just to get us to heaven. That's not enough for God. He doesn't want to just change your status. He wants to change your character, your behavior. That's the third part of the book of Romans. God is righteous in sanctification. Sanctification, just a fancy theological word for talking about God making believers righteous through the power of his spirit. That's what we're going to look at in chapters 6 through 8, this process. Now, whereas justification was was an instantaneous change, the moment you believe God instantly and forever changed your status, sanctification is a process. God gradually growing you in victory over sin. God gradually growing you in a character of righteousness. That's what Paul is going to focus on in this portion of the book. And I want to overview it for you for a moment. We're actually going to be here for a while. We're going to finish out the semester on this, pick it up in the spring semester and look at it for a number of weeks in the spring. Let me give you the big picture real quick. What is Paul going to say about sanctification, about this progressive growth in in a character of righteousness? Well, he's going to start today, chapter six, by answering the question, why should we pursue it? You've already got justification. You've already got heaven. So why bother with sanctification? That's what Paul's going to look at in chapter six. Why pursue sanctification? Then first half of chapter seven, he's going to tell us what will not produce sanctification in your life. What won't produce it is the law. A checklist of things to do, that's not going to sanctify you. Second half of chapter 7, he's going to tell us, why is sanctification so hard? Here I am, I have been declared righteous by God, so why do I still want to sin? Why do I still blow it on a daily basis? That's what he's going to cover in the second half of chapter 7. Then chapter 8, first half, what will produce sanctification? What is the hope of growth in righteousness? That's the spirit. The law can't produce sanctification, but the Spirit can. The Holy Spirit can grow you in righteousness. And then that will lead Paul to the finale at the last half of chapter 8. He's going to give us confidence in the midst of this struggle. In the ebbs and flows of our growth in righteousness, he's going to give us secure confidence in the second half of chapter 8. So that's where we're going in chapters 6 through 8 over the next couple months. Let's start back in chapter 6. We're going to look at the first half of chapter 6 this morning, looking at motivation for sanctification. You've already got justification through faith alone. That's already sealed. You're going to be in heaven forever no matter what you do. So why bother with sanctification? That's what this morning is about. Motivation for sanctification. That motivation begins with a question. Look at chapter 6, verse 1. Let's pick it up there. 
chapter 6, verse 1, Paul asks, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? I want us to actually ask a few questions about this question. First, what does it mean? What does Paul mean by this question? Well, look at a couple key words here. Are we to continue? That means to to remain, to persist, to live in sin. Now, it's interesting. Paul uses sin singular, not sins plural, sin singular. So you do a word study. You look at what what does Paul mean when he uses the word sin as a singular noun? Well, in, in every case, Paul is personifying sin. Paul is personifying sin as a cruel master, a mean slave owner who rules over people. That's what Paul means here. Continue under the mastery of sin. You see that in verse 12. Look ahead to verse 12. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. Sin as a a master, do not let it rule over you. The, The outcome, the result of letting sin singular rule over your life is that you obey its lust. That's just a fancy way of talking about sins, plural. If you let sin singular rule over you, the necessary outcome, the unavoidable outcome is sins, plural. You will do bad things. In other words, Paul is saying sin singular produces sins, plural. So that helps us kind of wrap our minds around what's going on with this question. Paul is asking, are we to continue under the mastery of sin such that it produces sins in our lives so that grace may increase? That's what the question means, but why is it being asked? That's the second thing I want to look at. Why ask this question? Where's it coming from? feels like it's out of left field. It's actually not. Look back at chapter 5, verse 20. Chapter 5, verse 20. We looked at this a couple weeks ago. Paul said, the law came in so that the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Now, now we read that and don't think anything of it, but Paul's audience would would have latched onto this. This was a radical thing to say. Paul is reviewing salvation history here. He's reviewing the history of mankind. And he says that whenever mankind comes into contact with God's law, the result is that sin increases. When we know what not to do, that just motivates us to do it more. So every time humanity is told what to do, we do the opposite. Sin increases. And every time sin increases, what's the result? Grace increases more. It's interesting in Greek. Literally, grace superabounds sin. As high as sin may go, grace always goes infinitely higher. That's a blessed truth. As much as sin grows in the world, God's grace grows to overwhelm it. Now that leads to the natural question. Okay. So if the more I sin, if the more we sin, the more God's grace is experienced in life, then why not give in to sin more and more? If the more I sin, the more I see of God's grace, then shouldn't I just keep giving in to sin? Shouldn't I let sin rule over me so that it produces more and more sin so that I can see more and more grace? That's the question. I would translate it this way. Here is the essence of the question. If more sin brings more grace, then why not let sin rule in my life so I can get more grace from God? That's the question of verse 1. The more I sin, the more grace I see, then why not let sin rule in my life so I get more grace? That leads to the third and final thing I want to look at with this question. Who is asking it? Who in the world is asking this question? Paul doesn't tell us. 
He doesn't picture for us the man asking this question. But I think from his argument, we can deduce it's one of two guys. Maybe Paul has both guys in mind, two possible people who would ask this question. First is the guy who wants to excuse sin. First guy who's going to ask this question. He hears chapter 5, verse 20, and he thinks, wait a minute, Paul. Whoa, whoa, whoa. You're telling me the, the more I sin, the more of God's grace I see, well, how convenient for me because I love sin. I enjoy sin. It comes naturally to me. Sin is what I want to do. It's fun at least for a while. So if more sin yields more grace, why not give in to more sin? Let sin run wild in my life. You see that thought in one of the the last century's greatest poets, a guy named W.H. Auden. He, He summarized it well. I like committing crimes. God likes forgiving them. Really, the world is admirably arranged. He's using God's grace as an excuse for sin. That's the first kind of guy who's going to ask the question of chapter 6, verse 1. But there's a second guy, actually a guy on the opposite side of the spectrum, whole, totally different guy who's going to ask this question. This is the guy who wants to protect grace. He hears Paul's statement in chapter 5, verse 20, and what comes to his mind is, Paul, you can't say that. Paul, you cannot tell people that the more you sin, the more they see of God's grace because if you tell them that, they're going to abuse grace. They're going to take grace for granted. Paul, you're giving people an excuse for sin. Your gospel of grace promotes sin. And so this person shouts out this question as an objection to Paul's gospel. The first guy uses the question as an excuse. The second guy uses the question as an objection. Paul, it can't be that free. It can't be that true. Okay, so either guy, whichever guy is asking the question, the question looks the same. Just to review it again, either guy is asking, if more sin brings more grace, then why not let sin rule in my life so I can get more grace? How does Paul answer that question? Well, the answer is in verses 2 through 10. It's in summary form in verse 2. So let's look at that. Just the summary of the answer in verse 2, Paul says, may it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Paul begins with an emphatic no. May it never be. In Greek, it's really strong. No way. Let this never be. And then Paul follows that emphatic no with a moral appeal. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? He's not stating an impossibility. Like we who died to sin can't live in it anymore. That's not what Paul's saying. He's making a moral appeal. How can we who've died to sin, how can we even think about living in it any longer? Why would you do that? That's crazy. That's what Paul's saying. How can we who died to sin even imagine for a second living in sin's mastery? So Paul answers no. Emphatically, he answers no. But why? Why shouldn't we? Paul, what, why is this a bad idea? Why shouldn't I let sin continue to rule over me so I can see more of God's grace? Paul answers that in the remainder of the passage. Verses 3 through 10, he explains himself. He tells us why. Why shouldn't we let sin rule over our lives? Look with me starting in verse 3. We're just going to read 3 to 5. It's the summary of his argument, the big idea, verses 3 through 5. Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we've been buried with him through baptism into death so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. This is Paul's answer to why. Why not let sin rule over your life? Now, what I want you to notice about his answer is what he doesn't say. 
He does not tell you, don't let sin rule over your life because if you abuse grace, you will lose grace. Or if you abuse grace, you will prove you never had grace. That's what so many people answer this question with. If you let sin rule in your life, then you lose your salvation or you prove you never had your salvation. Paul doesn't go there. He never brings their salvation into doubt. In fact, his argument continues to assume their salvation. He is speaking to them as saved people. In other words, Paul never backtracks on the radical freeness of his gospel. To the guy who is objecting and trying to protect grace, Paul doesn't say, yeah, you're right, let me clarify, let me backtrack. No, no, it really is that free. Justification is an absolutely free gift by faith alone. Obedience plays no part in it. Once justified, always justified, no matter what comes later in your life. Paul doesn't backtrack from the radical freeness of the gospel. He doesn't answer it that way. Instead, how does he answer this question? Why shouldn't we let sin rule over our lives? Because, Paul says, verses 3 through 5, because of Jesus. That's where his answer goes. It's all about Jesus. Jesus is the answer. Why not let sin rule? Because of Jesus. And and here's really what Paul is doing. He's saying, don't let sin rule over your lives because Jesus died and rose from the dead to set you free from sin. I think that's the answer in, in summary form, really where Paul is going. Here's how he's thinking of this. Why should you not let sin rule over your life? Because do you realize that the Son of God, the infinite, immortal, eternal, perfect, innocent Son of God died and rose from the dead for the explicit purpose of setting you free from slavery to sin. That's why he did it. That's why he died and rose from the dead is to set you free from sin. How can you imagine going back under it? Paul points us to Jesus. It's all about him. How can you imagine living under the thing that Jesus died and rose from the dead to set you free from? That's the big idea of the passage. Let's look at some of the details. Look with me at verse three. Let's, let's flesh out some of these details. Paul begins, or do you not know? That's, that's really the key word in these verses, know. He wants us to know a truth. This passage is about a truth that we need to know, that we need to understand. And notice it's a truth about what? A truth about all of those who have been baptized into Christ Jesus. Paul wants us to know a truth about baptism. Now, This raises a red flag for us. This raises a theological problem for us Protestants. What do we do with baptism? Okay, when you read this passage and you encounter the word baptism, you wonder, okay, what exactly did they understand Paul talking about here? What's he talking about? When they hear the word baptism, what comes to their mind? Water. The, The thing we do up on the stage where we dunk people and lift them up. When they hear the word baptism, they're thinking water. You have to specify if you mean something different. So they know Paul's talking about water baptism. The problem for us is that in the passage we just read, baptism is presented as the basis of all this really important stuff. This really important salvation kind of stuff is tied to baptism. And that leads us to ask, well, wait a minute, Paul. Paul, are you saying that faith is really not enough for salvation, that really I need to add a second step of water baptism, that faith plus water baptism is required for salvation? Paul, is that what you're saying? What do we do with that? How do we answer that theological problem? Well, uh, the first thing that we need to understand is that in Paul's day, absolutely no one was asking that question. No one in the New Testament church asked that question. Why didn't they? Why didn't anyone ask this question? Well, because in the New Testament church, they did not think of faith and baptism as separate steps. 
They didn't think of them as separate things. They were integrally tied together. They followed one another. Within moments of one another, they were tied together so tightly that they couldn't conceive of them as separate things. Look with me, uh, Acts chapter 8. The text's too small. You can turn in your Bible. Acts 8, 35 to 38. Then Philip opened his mouth. And beginning from this scripture, he preached Jesus to him. That is the Ethiopian eunuch. As they went along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, look, water. What prevents me from being baptized? And Philip said, well, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God. And he ordered the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip as well as the eunuch, and he baptized him. So for the Ethiopian eunuch, how much time separated his belief in the gospel from his water baptism? However much time it takes to stop a chariot, I don't think that's much. Maybe, what, 30 seconds, one minute, maybe, between belief and baptism. It's just right there. They were together. You you see that again a couple chapters later. Acts chapter 10. Now Peter goes and speaks to the Gentiles, to Cornelius' house. And and Peter is sharing the gospel with them. And as he shares every word that comes out of Peter's mouth, Cornelius and his family believe it. They believe that this is God's gospel. Look what happens. Peter says, of him, that is Jesus, all the prophets bear witness that through his name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. Now, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message. Then Peter said, surely no one can refuse the water for these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did, can he? Now, I want you to notice, if you really want to press this theological issue, if you really want to know, is water baptism required for salvation, this passage proves the answer is no. If you want to press it, this passage proves it because look what happens they're believing every word that comes out of peter's mouth peter gets to the gospel you have to believe in the name of jesus to receive forgiveness of sins they believe that and the holy spirit falls on them mid-sentence just instantaneous holy spirit sitting there on top of them that is absolutely definitive proof that they're saved Holy Spirit falling on you, that's regeneration, that's conversion. They are now saved. They are now God's children. Baptism follows that. Salvation comes before water baptism. But what I really want you to notice here is how connected belief and baptism are. They believe the Holy Spirit falls. And the first thing Peter says is, well, get some water. Who can refuse some water? Let's baptize them. How long was it between their belief and their baptism? Maybe five minutes? Maybe 10 at the most? What this is telling us is that in the early church, there was no such thing as a believer who was not baptized, at least not for more than two or three minutes. That was it. Every believer was baptized as soon as they believed. Baptism was simply what you did immediately after believing to demonstrate your faith. Your faith is invisible. Baptism is how you show it. In the early church, there was no controversy over it. There were no debates about baptism because everyone was baptized. There's no controversy over it. It's just what we do as soon as we believe. I think it's helpful if if you think of water baptism in your Bible uh, like these, like wedding rings. That's what baptism is like in the New Testament. So uh, this wedding ring that I wear, if you come up and you ask me, Blake, are you married? I don't actually have to say anything to you, do I? I just point. In fact, you probably don't have to come ask me because you see the wedding ring. It's right here. Okay, so you know, because you see this symbol, you know that I am married because in this culture, the symbol is so connected to the reality that the symbol can stand in for it. There's no controversy over it. Now, does this ring actually marry me to Julie? No. If I take the ring off, I don't lose my marriage. If I lose the ring, I'm not now all of a sudden divorced. 
No, I'm married to Julie based on my vows, the commitments I made to her before God and other witnesses. The ring just symbolizes that. The ring doesn't make me married just like baptism doesn't make you saved. Because the symbol is so connected to the reality in our minds, I can refer to the reality by pointing to the symbol. That's what Paul is doing in Romans 6. There's no theological controversy here. There's no debate. Paul just points to the symbol to refer to the reality. So Paul does, Peter does, lots of passages. Okay, so let's get back to Paul's answer. Paul's answer to the question, why shouldn't we live under the mastery of sin? Paul points us to our baptism. Our baptism as a symbol of what has changed in us through Jesus. Because Jesus died and rose from the dead, that has radically changed who we are as symbolized in baptism. Baptism symbolizes, first of all, our union with Jesus's death. That's the first part of the meaning of the symbol of baptism. It symbolizes our union to Jesus in death. You see that explained in verse 3. Look at verse 3. Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? We have been united to him in death. That's what Paul is thinking about here. Just like you are united to the water in baptism when you're dunked, so you have been united to Jesus in death. Paul will put it this way in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me in the life which I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. I have been crucified with Christ. Do you, do you see what that means? Paul says that in the eyes of God, I hung next to Jesus on his cross. That's not a hypothetical. That's not metaphorical. That's not figurative. That is legal forensic language. In the eyes of God, in the courtroom of the universe, I was nailed to the cross with Jesus. That's what baptism symbolizes, my union to the death of Jesus. This decisive, final union. I am dead. I died with him on the cross. His death is my death. 2,000 years ago. I don't know how God works out the time dynamics there, but in God's eyes, you really hung with Jesus on the cross 2,000 years ago if you believed in him. So we are united to the death of Jesus. Now, what's the significance of that? Why does it matter to us, particularly in this question about living in sin? So what that we have died with Christ? What is the significance of that? Well, that's what Paul looks at in verses six and seven. Read with me starting in verse six. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Now, these are some challenging verses. It uses some some weird phrases here. Let me explain these to you. Uh, Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him. Now, what's that? Our our old self, literally in Greek, our, our old man. What is my old man? Well, it's not a part of me. My old man is all of me in Adam, all of me before my conversion. My old man is Blake Jennings before he received the gospel at age four. And Paul's point is that kid is dead. That old Blake Jennings legally in God's eyes is dead. He doesn't exist anymore. I'm new. I'm someone different because I died with Christ. My old man is dead. The result of that is what's next. In order that the purpose of my old man being crucified with Christ was so that our body of sin might be done away with, or literally in Greek, our body of sin might be rendered powerless. Now, what does that mean, body of sin? Well, Paul here is is picturing my body, all of me, before my conversion. All of me, my, my body was just a tool of sin. 
When sin called, I came. When sin told me to do something, my body did it. I couldn't help it. My body was the unwitting tool of sin. And Paul says, now because the old Blake is dead, his body as an instrument of sin is powerless. His body can't lead him into sin anymore because sin doesn't have ownership over me anymore. That leads to the final phrase in the verse, final ultimate purpose, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. This is the ultimate reason why Jesus died for us, why we are united to his death, so that we would no longer be under the mastery of sin. So we would no longer belong to sin as slaves. And Paul explains how that has happened, how that change has come about in verse 7. Verse 7 is a principle, a legal truth, a legal proverb, for he who has died is freed from sin. In other words, the slave who has died is freed from ownership by his master. Death is the end of slavery. That's just a factual truth, a legal truth. If you belong to someone as a slave and then you die, their claim on you comes to an end. That's part of the reason that those who were slaves in our country sang so many songs about heaven. Because heaven was a place where finally they would no longer be slaves again because death brought an end to the ownership of your master. Paul's point is, because you died, sin is no longer your master. Sin has no legal claim over you. When you were born, you were born into slavery to sin. The old Blake Jennings was a slave of sin, but that guy died. And when that guy died, sin's claim upon me came to an end in the courtroom of the universe. It's over. Sin has no legal ownership of me. That's the significance. Because I am united to Christ as symbolized in baptism, I have been emancipated from sin. This is my 13th amendment right here. I'm emancipated from slavery to sin because I've been united on the cross with the death of Christ. Okay, so baptism first symbolizes my my union with the death of Christ. Second, it symbolizes my union with the resurrection of Jesus. That's where Paul goes in verses four and five. I've been united not just to his death, but also to his resurrection. And that has very major implications on my life. That has major implications now. Look at verse four. Therefore, we've been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. What Paul is saying to us is that we have been united to Jesus in the tomb. When he he rose bodily from the tomb, we were there. In God's eyes, this is not metaphorical, this is not figurative, this is real. We were there in Jesus when he rose from the dead. The result is is that in this life, we enjoy newness of life. We can walk in newness of life. What Paul's saying here is this. In Ephesians 2, 1, it tells us that all of us were born dead in trespasses and sins. What does that mean, dead in trespasses and sins? That means we couldn't resist sin. All we could ever do was sin. After justification, that's completely changed. After justification, now we live in newness of life. We can walk with Christ. We can walk in the example of Jesus. We can do that which is righteous and good because we have Jesus' resurrection power in us. That's the radical thing that verse 4 is saying. The same supernatural, world-altering power that regenerated Jesus' body and raised him up to bodily life lives in you right now. That same supernatural power gives you power to walk in righteousness. God's resurrection power is in you now. That's the implication in this life. The implication in the next life is resurrection. 
In the future, we will share literally in the resurrection of Jesus. That's the point of verse 5. For if we become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. When we are raised from the dead in the next life, we'll be just like Jesus, glorious, perfect, free not just from the power of sin, but the presence of sin, immortal, eternal in our life. We'll never die from that point on. We will be conformed to the likeness of Jesus. That has some major impact on our life now. That's promise of the resurrection. Look with me down at verses 8 through 10. Paul fleshes out the significance of being united to Jesus' resurrection. He says in verse 8, Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again, death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Here's what Paul is saying. Jesus died, and when Jesus died, death died in its power over him. When Jesus died and rose from the dead, death no longer was master over him. Death has no claim on Jesus. Jesus is freed from from the mastery of death. All of us who have been united to Jesus, we experience what Jesus experienced. That's what it means to be with Christ, in Christ. What's true of him is true of you. So if death no longer is master of Jesus, then death no longer is master of you. That's the logical connection here that Paul is making. Because you have been united to Jesus, everything that is true of him is true of you, then therefore, since death has no claim over him, death has no claim over you. The implication of that is there is no reason for us as believers to fear death. Death is not our master. Death is not the end of our story. Death is not something to live in terror of. Death sounds scary. It looks scary from a distance, but in reality, it's not scary at all. Death is the ultimate paper tiger for a believer. Sounds scary, but it has no fangs. It has no way to hurt us because death for us as believers is just a doorway into the life you always wanted. In fact, death is a good thing for you. Death gets you where you want to be. Death gets you into the eternity you've always wanted to enjoy. There's no fear in death for those who are united to Christ. That's why Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 15, Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? It's gone. There is no victory in death for the believer. There is no sting in death for the believer. It has been conquered. The power of death has been neutered through the resurrection of Jesus. Holds no power over those who have been united to Jesus Christ. Okay, so let's, let's pull all this back together. The question that chapter six began with is, if God's grace always excels our sin, that the more I sin, the more of God's grace I see, then why shouldn't I let sin rule over my life so I can get more and more of God's grace? Why shouldn't I? Paul says, because, because of Jesus. Because don't you realize that the infinite, immortal, perfect, innocent son of God died and rose again for this explicit purpose? to set you free from sin. How can you imagine, how can you even contemplate going back under sin's mastery? That's the truth that Paul wants us to know this morning. Now I want to end by applying it. That's what Paul does. That's the truth we need to know. He applies it in verses 11 through 13. He gives us a a three-step process of application, three steps to apply this truth. Step number one is verse 11. Paul says, even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Consider, that verb means to to reckon something to be true. Uh, Maybe the best way to put it is to believe that something is true. We know it's true. Paul just spent a great deal of time proving that it's true, but now he challenges us, okay, you know it's true, now you gotta believe it. 
You gotta believe it. You gotta own this truth. You gotta let this truth sink in and change the way that you think. It's so easy for knowledge to say external to us, to say something academic, theological, in books. Paul doesn't want it to be like that. Paul wants this truth to invade our hearts and change our way of thinking. That's what consider means. Own it, believe it, let it change you. Believe that this is true. Believe that sin is no longer your master. And really, here's what it looks like for us believers. Here's the the practical expression of this. To consider it true means that we need to choose to believe that no sin is unavoidable. No sin in your life, at any moment in time, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, no sin will ever again be unavoidable. No sin is necessary. No sin is unbeatable. No sin has mastery over you. That applies to the really hard sins too. Applies to the addictive sins. Things like substance abuse or or pornography or eating disorders. Those sins that seem to own people. They don't own believers. No matter how strong they appear, they do not own you. No sin is ever unavoidable. That's even true for those sins that get connected to our personalities like worry or pride or anger. Well, I'm just a, a worrying kind of person. I'm just an angry kind of person. Paul says, no, you can't make excuses like that. You who are believers have no excuse for sin because there is no sin that is unavoidable. There is no sin that's just part of who you are. No, you're not that guy anymore. No sin is ever necessary. No sin is ever unavoidable for the believer. At any given moment, you can have victory over any given sin because sin is no longer your master. You need to believe that that is true. You need to own that truth. And, and what I would encourage you to do, one of the best ways to grow your belief in a truth, your, your consideration of a truth, is to memorize some scripture. I want to specifically encourage you to memorize Romans 6, 4 through 7. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. Why do we memorize scripture? I mean, we've got it uh, in book form. We've got it on our computers. We've got it on our phones for most of us. So why bother memorizing it? We have it there in 30 seconds. The reason you memorize scripture is because it builds faith. You memorize scripture because it reinforces faith. When you memorize it, it goes out of the page and into your mind and changes your heart so that you own it, so that you believe it. So memorize these verses this week. That would be my encouragement to you. Take this home, memorize these verses this week. And then when sin comes calling, when you feel tempted towards a particular sin, especially a sin that has had great victory over your life in the past, a sin that does not feel defeatable by you, I want you to say this verse to it. I want you to say this passage to that sin. When temptation comes, quote this passage to it. (laughs) This sin, this does not own me. You have no authority over me. I have been freed through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Quote this passage to that temptation. As you do that, memorizing and quoting scripture, it will build and strengthen your faith so you can resist it. That's step number one. Consider it to be true. Believe it that sin has no mastery over you. That leads us to step number two in verse 12. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust. Paul is telling us here, reject sin's authority. Do not let it reign over you. Paul's point is, sin doesn't have any necessary authority over you. Not anymore. Sin is not your legal master anymore. You've been set free from that. The only authority that sin has in your life is the authority you give it. That's all it has, the authority you give it. Just like Denver Moore. Go back, think about Denver Moore again. Was he a slave? Well, legally, no. He wasn't a slave, 13th Amendment. Legally, he's not a slave. So why did he live like a slave? Because he chose to. Because he chose to give authority to the man 
because he chose to live under the man's authority. He lived like a slave. Paul's point here is just like Denver Moore, you need to wake up and get on the train and get out of Louisiana. You need to get out of this land owned by sin. Do not let sin rule over you. It doesn't have to. It's not your master anymore. It only has whatever authority you give it. I think whereas step number one is about belief, step number two is about commitment. It's about a commitment that we make before the Lord. We go before him and we say, Lord, I am tired of letting sin rule over me. I'm tired of giving it an authority that no longer belongs to it. Lord, I commit to get off the land. I commit to get on that train today to follow you out of here. If that's you, if you've been living in the land of sin, if you've been living under the mastery of sin, letting it have its way with you, whether it's a particular area of sin or sin in general, my encouragement to you would be to go home and to pray to the Lord. Lord, today, Sunday, I commit to you to get on the train and leave the land to get out of here, to no longer surrender authority in my life to this cruel master. Okay, now, how do we actually live that out? What does it look like on Monday to choose to leave the land of sin? Well, we're going to get to that next week. Next week, we're going to look at step number three, starting in verse 13. It focuses on the word present. We're going to talk about presenting the, the members of our body to God rather than to sin. I really want to encourage you, the, this chapter six, these two messages in chapter six are not meant to be separated. It was hard to separate them. They're, they're really part one and part two. So please come back next week or listen to it online. You need the second part. So far, I've only given you step one and two. So you need step three. We'll do that next week, but let's close by going to the Lord and and praying that God will help us to believe this radical and incredible truth that we are free from the mastery of sin and to choose once and for all to walk off the land, no longer giving sin authority in our lives. Let's pray for God's help to do that. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning with grateful hearts. Thank you so much, Lord. We were born slaves of sin and we proved every day of our lives that that we were worthy of that, that that we were sin slaves, that we were sin's happy slaves. We committed nothing but sin. We willingly rebelled against you, but in incredible love and matchless grace, Lord. Through the death and resurrection of your own beloved son, you have set us free. You have emancipated us. Thank you for that, Lord. You have set us free from our slavery to sin. You have brought us into resurrection life. We have the life of Christ in us right now. We have the hope of resurrection forever. Thank you for that truth, Lord. Thank you for setting us free. And Father, we confess that for many of us, even though we may know theologically that we are free from sin, Lord, we live like slaves. We let sin have authority over our lives. We have these areas of sin that we just succumb to, we surrender to as if we had no choice. Father, we confess that to you. Lord, we do have a choice. We can resist sin. Lord, we thank you for that truth. And we pray that you would begin to grow us and change us, work in every area of our lives so that we fully obey you, so that we walk in righteousness like Jesus did. Help us, Father, to leave the land of sin behind. Help us to get on that train to no longer surrender authority to sin. I pray for everyone in this room, Lord, that you would help to bring about that growth, Lord. We know that in this life, it's not gonna come in an instant. This is a process. It takes time, it takes effort, it takes work. We pray, Lord, that your spirit would be heavy upon us, that he would lead us and move us, Lord, in the direction of righteousness. Thank you so much for the freedom we have in Christ. In his glorious name we pray, amen. All right, God bless you guys. See you next week.